part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Matthew 14. It's going to be a very familiar passage maybe to, to many of you if you've been in church. Uh, if you're new to church, it may be a brand new story kind of event that you've never heard about. But this morning, we're going to be talking in, in the next several weeks leading up to Easter uh, about doubt. It's one of those things that I think that sometimes we get so many misgivings about doubt that somehow we feel like doubt, uh, that a mature Christian wouldn't have doubt in their lives. And one of the greatest things that we need to do about difficult subjects is develop a good biblical theology of that. We've looked at suffering before. And, and are we teaching our kids the, the theology, a biblical theology of suffering so that when suffering does come to their lives, both as adults and as children as they grow, that they would know that there's biblical answers and that they wouldn't just be kind of tossed about here and there. Well, I think we could apply that same theory, that same kind of truth, same kind of principle to the idea about doubt. Um, I don't know that there's a Christian alive who has not had times of doubt. We've talked about that before. I think that there's times in our lives as we follow Christ and we want to follow Christ very hard and, and passionately that we can even come to that point not just doubting, you know, this one incident or another incident in our life, but doubting, is this just a fairy tale? Is this just something that I use as a crutch to try to get me through the hard things of life? Thank God, through his Holy Spirit, he brings us back to a place of truth and, and grounding. But I've heard all kinds of different philosophies, if you want to say, about doubt. I've heard some people say, well, if you're a strong Christian, you're not going to doubt. Obviously, I was not a strong Christian because I challenged her on that, that very thing. Now, yes, we're going to have doubt. Why? Because we're fallen people in a fallen world. And yet we have the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ, and the very Spirit of God to illuminate his truth so that we can apply it to our lives. So this morning we're going to start, how do we develop a good, sound, biblical theology of suffering? The fact is you already have one. Whether it's biblical or not is probably, you know, could be questioned. You do have a way of responding to difficulties and storms when doubt comes. Some, you feel guilty. You know, your first impulse is that a good Christian would not feel this way, so you kind of feel guilty. Others would say, you know, something like, well, I, I guess because I've doubted, I've sinned. Is doubt a sin? Over the next couple of weeks, we want to go to the Word of God and kind of give us this, this bedrock, foundational phase where we can build this up. Fact is, all of us are going to go through suffering. All of us are going to go through storms in life. All of us will face times of doubt. And so wouldn't it be good to know how to deal with it biblically? How many of you have ever, when you've encountered a storm in your life, just be honest, you don't have to raise your hand, but just answer it in your own mind, in your own heart this morning, that when you encountered a difficulty in your life and you couldn't directly tie it to a sin or a wrong choice that you had made in your life, but you just knew that this had happened in your life, that somewhere in the back of your mind you're going, okay, is this because I sinned? Is this storm coming because this is kind of God's retribution system that, you know, I do bad things and so God allows bad things happen to me. How many of you ever question God's love for you when real heavy difficulty comes to your life? Or as Carly and I like to say a lot of times, when it comes to your children. Because I have found that the, the greatest vulnerability that I have in my faith is not what happens to me, but what happens to my kids. 
And now I've added another tier in my grandchildren, so I can only imagine that that's going to kind of, you know, follow all the way down there. But isn't that kind of where we go sometimes with things like that? Is this an attack of Satan? A thousand questions, do we have biblical answers? And so this morning we know that God doesn't back away from a true heart that just wants to know. And so this morning we're going to look into doubt. Because doubt is like a cancer, folks. A cancer can develop in a body with one cell. And then it begins to multiply. And you can even come in there and do some chemo and you can do different things like that. But if you didn't get every cell, what happens? It metastasizes and shows up maybe in another form. And that's what doubt happens, how it happens in our lives. It can start in one area of our life. And then by the time that if we allow it to manifest and just keep on growing in our lives, it goes to other areas of our life. And pretty soon that we begin to to really doubt all the foundational things of our life. And so this morning we want to make sure that we diagnose this properly and that we... um, We treat it, again, in just a biblical way. Here's the first thing I want you to know about doubt this morning. It's biblical, okay? (laughs) Doubt can happen to anyone, anytime, anywhere. How many of you agree with that? Yeah. How many of you experience that? Yeah. You know, well, if I'm just really passionate about Christ, if I'm really living for the Lord, no, doubt can happen to anyone, Anytime, anywhere. Yeah, but if we were just right with God, if we were just... No, doubt can happen to anyone, anytime, anywhere. That's really important for us to know. And we're going to find out why that is. We're going to go back to my favorite passage. I think I preach it every week, Genesis 3. We go back to the fall because it's back at the fall that we see these vulnerabilities come into our lives. But first I want you to go to Matthew 28, verse 16 and 17. We're approaching the Easter season, and this is after uh, Thomas, uh, you know, had some doubts. He, he wanted to touch, you know, the, the holes in Jesus' hand. And, and really, at the invitation of Jesus, Jesus said, okay, you have doubts. And he's the one that invited Thomas to come touch his hands and, and, and feel that and experience that he really was resurrected. And you would have thought that maybe that would have been the end of the disciples doubting, and, and yet we find that it wasn't. Right, Matthew 28 the closing words of Matthew's gospel is the Great Commission. Okay, when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. Remember that time? And so this is a really, really, really important time. Jesus has shown himself alive and moving among the people and doing all these things so that there's really, among the believers, there's no doubt that Jesus is somewhat alive. And I say that, and yet I have to kind of correct myself because look what it says. Matthew 28, 16 and 17. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. We're about to, to witness the ascension of Christ. And when they saw him, what? They worshiped him, but some doubted. See those two words? We usually don't think that that can coexist. Can worship and doubt coexist? And one way I could probably argue if I was just on the debating team that they can't. But there's another time that I find that even those who truly want to worship and follow Christ hard, that doubt can come. I don't think that worship and doubt was happening simultaneously, but I do think that they can happen one after another. It's one of those things, it's amazing the range of emotions, thoughts and feelings that we have, and different things that we experience in our life, and how drastically they can go from one to another, seemingly two different sides of the spectrum. 
unbelief or a doubt. And, and let me correct that, doubt, because we're going to find out next week that doubt is not necessarily unbelief. It's when we act upon it in worship. But we would think that doubt and worship are two different things. Parallel universes there. And yet, what does Jesus say? I mean, what does the word of God tell us? That right here, they've witnessed, right before they see Jesus going up and right before he gives us this great commission, that some worshiped and some doubted. Let's start with a good working definition of doubt. If you have your notes, you can write this down. I encourage you to take notes, but especially in this series, and especially this is, you know, this is more of Nerd Sunday when we start something and we lay a, a, a foundation. Uh, and the foundational definition, while there's many that we could go with, here's the one that we're going to go with. To lack confidence, to consider other alternatives. Is that not the practical outcome of doubt in our lives? That, that we lack confidence to move in one way and we begin to doubt. And so all of a sudden, what do we do? We consider alternatives. Let's say that we fell in love with this sweet lady and, and so we, we're going to ask her, guys. And I said, man, I want her to be my wife. So I'm going to ask her. And so we buy a ring and we kind of make plans and maybe we even go to her parents and ask for permission to ask her hand in marriage. And so we do all these preliminary things, and yet then we get there, and on that particular day that we had planned to, to ask her, all of a sudden, she's just kind of cold. She's just kind of, you know, is you know, just not feeling it. And all of a sudden, doubt strikes that young man's heart. And what does he do? He begins to lack confidence, and he begins to consider alternatives. Not instead of Sally Sue, you know, he's going to go over here to Betty Sue, but he all of a sudden he goes, okay, I was going to ask her, but maybe tonight I won't ask her. All of a sudden there's another alternative of a path that we've kind of already pre-selected. We were going to go this way, and now we're doubting that because of whatever reason. Think back to the Garden of Eden. God made it very plain that they were not to eat from a certain tree. God stacked the odds in the favor of Adam and Eve. They were perfect, but remember, we always like to use that word, infallibly perfect. They had the ability to make a choice there. And so God says, you can eat from all these other trees. This one you cannot eat from. But Satan offered another alternative that introduced doubt. Here, here's how the conversation, if you go back to Genesis 3, here's how the conversation goes. The serpent, Satan, comes on and he says, did God really say. Remember that? And do you remember Eve's initial response? If we go back to Genesis 3, verse 2, it comes back and she says, you know, but God did say that we would die if we eat for this tree. Now look what the serpent responds in verse 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And guess what came into Eve's mind and her heart? A lack of confidence to follow what God had told her and certainly a consideration of alternative measures. All of a sudden, she has, there's two choices. Before, I don't eat from this tree. I can eat from all these other trees. And even though she knew that there was a choice there before, I don't know how much she had really entertained that. But now temptation comes and there's this, other plot in front of her to say, you know, here's what you can get if you kind of disobey God and you follow this path. God's holding out on you. Maybe thoughts that she had never had in her life before. I don't know. We don't know the full description of all that had been entertained in Eve, Adam and Eve's mind. But now doubt comes. 
And when they acted upon that doubt, there is sin and there is the fall. So doubt is when we're confronted with two believable choices. I didn't say two right choices. I didn't say two godly choices, but two believable choices, or at least two. We might have three or four. Now, those alternative choices, why are they so believable? Why when God has been really kind of black and white on a lot of subjects in the Bible, he's just kind of said, this is what you do. Why do we try to gray that up? Why do we allow things that are really not in that spectrum of black and white, God said to do this, God said not to do that, and and yet we want to make this gray area. We talked about this last week when we were looking at the last part of Malachi. He said, the wicked and the righteous. And I know that some of you were offended by that, that there's just the wicked and the righteous, that if you're not in Christ, you are the wicked. Well, that just hurts my feelings, Pastor. I don't think I'm wicked. I'm not always great, but I'm not wicked. It's the only two terms that he gives there, and he does that in Psalms, and he does that in other places. He doesn't make this gray area, and yet we do. Why? Because we have doubts, and so we begin to consider other believable choices. And why are they believable? Because if you weren't here last week, I'll go back and some other time and tell you, but you know my favorite character out there, Farmer Ted, who uh, is a good guy, gives away one-third of his crops, was a great father, a great husband, great community member, but did not put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we have, as a society, as a people, we have a really, really difficult time to think that Farmer Ted is not going to go to heaven. We really have a hard time with it. Why? Because he was better than we are, maybe morally in so many other ways. And so we're going, okay, if he's not going to make it, then how can I make it? And the conclusion always comes back to, are you in Christ? Well, I don't consider myself the righteous one. Well, if you're in Christ, that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He took all of our sins and he he put them on Christ and he took all of his rightness, his righteousness, and he imputed it to us. It's a phenomenal thing. It blows my mind. But those are the only two terms. But that's an example of where we want to kind of, you know, we begin to have doubts. Why do we have doubts? Let me categorize the way doubt comes into our lives in three different areas. One, we have emotional doubts based on feelings. And we live in a culture that has amplified feelings to the hierarchy that says, okay, how you feel is reality. And there's a part of us that really believes that. Why? Because we really are feeling that way. But have your feelings ever lied to you, folks? A lot. There's a lot of times our feelings are not telling the truth. And so if we put all of our weight on our feelings, well, man, at best, we've got it 50-50 of making a, a wise choice there. Because feelings can be deceptive. But feelings, when they're hurt, tragedy comes into our lives, a real heavy comes into our lives, and, and we begin to, to doubt emotionally that God loves us and that, how could this happen to good people? Number one question, poll after poll after poll after poll, number one question from both the Christian world and, and all those secular world, the non-Christian world, is this. Why do bad things happen to good people? What's at the root of that question? Yeah, just feelings. Man, you know, why, why does this happen? This doesn't seem logical. This doesn't go along with my feelings. And that leads us right into the second Thing. Not only do we have emotional doubt, but we can have intellectual doubt. 
Uh, This happens a lot. Um, We have a very intelligent group here. Many of you, multi-degrees, you have more degrees on your walls than Paul did. I mean, it's one of those things that you're smart people. You're, You're a learned people. And that's a great thing, but can sometimes logic and fact get in the way of faith? It really can. There's sometimes that, you know, sometimes, I'm not telling you to be illogical, and I'm certainly not telling you that, that we don't go out there and try to, you know, expand our mind and, and study well, but, but there's going to be times that the things of God aren't just logical. Jesus says, forgive as you've been forgiven. And then he directs us to this person, perhaps, that has great offense against us. And yet that person who has great offense against us has done terrible things, has never apologized, has never said, I'm sorry that I, you know, for all these things. And yet God wants us to forgive that person? That's illogical. And that goes against our feelings. And yet that's the supernatural call of God upon our lives. Why? Because we're exercising what Christ did for us. The last one there is experiential doubt. And uh, uh, having done counseling for, for many, many years, this is one that comes up a lot. And it comes up a lot in relationships because all of a sudden, you know, the, where it comes up a lot is sometimes somebody will be in a new relationship, let's say a love relationship, a love interest, and they bring in the hurt feelings of past relationships into that new relationship. And it's Frustrating to them because they want to trust this new person and yet they haven't always been with trustworthy people in the past. But guess who's really frustrated by this? The new boyfriend, the new girlfriend. I'm not that guy. I'm not that gal. Why do you bring your past experiences and kind of impose them upon me? We see it all the time. And yet, folks, we do that. And we come from hurtful situations because we're broken people in a broken world. And we take all that hurt and sometimes we kind of direct it toward God. Well, enough background, enough kind of laying the foundation. Let's get into the word. Matthew 14. I think we're going to see a little bit of all of this demonstrated in this account with uh, the life of Peter. And before we even get into Matthew chapter 14 here, let me ask you, a question, two questions, in fact. Uh, this is after Peter has already started following Christ. Uh, we see this probably in the, the middle of, of the ministry there. Uh, he's been one that has testified to, to who Christ is. He's pretty passionate about his beliefs. Do you believe that Peter loved Jesus? Anybody that would say no? Okay, so we're pretty much all in guarantee. I mean, I didn't... We didn't get every hand, but most of us in here say, okay, we, we believe by what we can tell by the scripture that Peter loves Jesus. Remember that this is really, really, really important, okay? Second thing, do you think that, that Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah? Not just a, a rabbi and not just a special teacher. Do you think that Peter believed that Jesus is the Messiah? Yeah. Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ. This is really important because I want you to see today, guys, you can love Jesus. You can believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You can have your theology intact and doubt still come to your life. 
This is such an important part because this crisis of belief, this crisis of faith in our lives, sometimes we think, okay, it must be because I don't love Jesus enough. I think Peter was a passionate lover and follower of Christ. He's the one that first testifies, thou art the Christ. And yet we're going to see that some doubt comes into his mind. It's also very important for us to understand, again, we always, since we're not preaching this through a book where we always have context, uh, to lay the context. What happens in the first passage, the part of the passage of Matthew 14, so that we can keep it in context, is the feeding of the 5,000. Now, you'll remember that there were several feedings of thousands of people. In this particular one, this is the one with the five loaves and the, and the, the two fish. And that it was getting late in the day, Jesus was teaching, and the disciples come up and they tap him on the shoulder. They said, Jesus, it's getting late. There's no McDonald's around here. We've got to find a, you know, these people are not going to be able to eat. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. And he gets the, the little boy's lunch, five loaves, two fishes, and he feeds everybody, 5,000 men and women and children. So maybe that was as much as 20, 25,000. But he feeds all of them with 12 baskets left over. A miraculous thing. Would you think that this would be kind of a high point of your ministry? I, I'm going to ask my, my brother here. Mark, you've pastored many ch- uh, churches and some really large churches and just all kinds of different ones. Sometimes you have really big events, right? You have one of those big events, and it just goes really well. Okay, let's see people really respond, people trust in Christ, all these things. How do you, when you go to bed that night, after exhausting hours, after all these things that happen, when you your head hits the pillow that night, how do you feel? Yeah. You know, we put some plans together, and the plans seem to have worked. It's kind of a high point of ministry. You would think that this would be a super high point of ministry, but we're going to find out that even at the high points of ministry, when things are going really well, that that exposure to doubt is still there. Look at verse 22. If you believe in writing in your Bibles... I think they're textbooks. I think I think it's okay with God for you to, to make notes in your Bible. Circle the word, the word immediately. You're going to see that three times in this passage. And it's an it's a impactful word of this passage. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately he, that is Jesus, made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, why did he do this? Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark does. And Mark, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, John does. In John chapter 6, verse 14, they were trying to make Jesus king. Hey, we want a king. We want a visible leader. And Jesus knows that he's come. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. But he knows that he's come for another reason. And it's not to be a king, an earthly king. And so immediately, what does he do? He gets the disciples and he puts them on a boat. He tells them to go to the other side. He's going to sell them across there. And he goes off to pray. Now, why did he go off to pray? Number one, because it was a common practice of of Christ to to pray to his father. The other thing, I think, is because even though he's fully God, he is fully man. And these people go, man, we want you, king. We want you, king. And and maybe there's a temptation. He didn't give in to temptation. But maybe there's a temptation like, yeah, being king wouldn't be so bad. I don't know. Speculating. The word doesn't tell us. But he goes off to pray. He sends the disciples on a boat to go to the other side. But the journey across the sea is not an easy one. Look at verse 24 and 25. 
But the boat by this time was a long way off from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So they sent out, and, and really the Sea of Galilee is not a huge, huge lake. Uh, when you go there, I, I was surprised when I visited that, that area of Israel that how small it really was. That you can, you can actually see the other sides, and from Capernaum, you can see Tiberias. You can actually look across there and see, you know, you can't make out people, but you can see landforms. And so they set off on this one side, uh, I don't know, maybe a two-hour journey at best. And yet now it's anywhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's dark night, and they're not there. Why? Because the storm has arisen which is not untypical on the Sea of Galilee. And the storm comes up, and you notice it says, and the wind is blowing against them. It's keeping them from their destination. Well, by this time, Jesus has finished praying, and and he's coming to the other side, and he's walking on the water. They just see a figure. They don't know that it's Jesus at this point. And so look what happens in verse 26. They think that they're seeing a ghost. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Remember, doubt is considering different alternatives. All of a sudden, you see two different possibilities, three different possibilities in your mind. They see this figure that's walking across there. They don't know that it's Jesus. They can't make it out as Jesus right now. And so what's the first thing that kind of comes into their mind? A ghost. Anybody, any sailors in here? I don't know that we have any direct sailors. Okay, Mike Burns from, from the old days, sailor, right? Do sailors have superstitions? Yes. <laughs> if you go back in time, sailors, especially in, in the archaic times, man, they had thousands of superstitions. You know, you got to do this. You got to do this. Oh, don't ever walk before that. They have thousands of different superstitions. Why? Because they feel kind of uncontrolled there at the mercy of the sea. Peter is a fisherman. He's made his living out in a boat. Do you think that maybe he and some of the other fishermen had a couple superstitions that they carried in from the old life into their new life now? And all of a sudden they're up against this wind. And I don't know that they had superstitions about ghosts or whatever, but here we see that quickly, quickly, they assume that this figure that they see walking on the water, number one, it's walking on the water, is a ghost. Look at verse 27. What's the first two words? But immediately, okay, second time, circle that, because it's the second out of three times that we're going to see that word. Immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus answers their fear and their doubt with truth. Okay? They see this figure. What is their first assumption? This is a ghost. Jesus cries out immediately. He doesn't let them wander in that. He immediately gives them an answer that should give them kind of the right direction. It's me. It's the Lord, take heart, don't be afraid. But can you see where, if, if you're one of the disciples, <laughs> that you have two alternatives to believe right now? One is, this is, sure looks like a ghost. 
looks like a ghost, smells like a ghost, might be a ghost. But, but, but we just heard this voice of truth. The Lord said it was him. Honestly, isn't that how doubt comes into our lives sometimes, guys? It's not that the Lord hasn't spoken, and it hasn't, it's not that he hasn't spoken truth, but, but in our mind, either because of the emotional, because of the intellectual, because of the past, or, or you know, just our past history, that we have this other possibility, this other alternative, and, and we're kind of there, and that's where doubt comes from. Do I put my trust and my faith in this? I do what God says? I mean, in a way, isn't tithing and, and kind of giving that? Well, the Bible speaks about giving. Offerings and tithes unto the Lord. We saw that in Malachi. And yet there's sometimes that we can truly, as the Bible says, be a joyful giver. Have you ever been a non-joyful giver? Have you been ever decided to go that doubt and, and just not give? Every one of us probably. Every one of us. Because all of a sudden there was a reality that there was four bills waiting at home and the church seemed like they had plenty of money. Just being honest, guys. Have we ever worked that out in our mind? Hey, you know, Andy, you know, our treasurer said that uh, that church was doing fine. I remember the last report and said that giving had really been gracious and and, and an overabundance. And I've got four bills here. And all of a sudden we have this kind of doubt. Which way do I go? Do I go to an obedience knowing that God has told me to, to, to give faithfully to ministry? Or do I take care of these things because for some reason, you know, the IRS wants their money? This is the reality of life. And this is why we need to have a theology on doubt. Because there's going to be real situations in our life that come up that present alternatives, choices that come in our way. So look at the boldness of Peter in verse 28. He's got an alternative choice. He's got the first choice, hey, it's a ghost. Oh, wait, sounds like Jesus. So look what he says. In bold Peter fashion, verse 28, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Folks, that's bold. In my non-boldness, Jesus, if it is you, come on over here. (laughs) Come on over here. A little closer so that we can see that you're not a ghost. This is a demonstration of faith and yet some doubt. Lord, if it is you. Do you see the contradiction in that? What is he calling? Lord. Is that just, you know, some title that he throws around and calls everybody? No. So he called Christ, the Messiah. You are the Lord. And so there's an acknowledgement, okay, Lord, if it really is you, and yet there's still these alternative choices in my head, do you see that crisis of belief right there? That's the reality of where we live sometimes when the storms of life hit us. This is very, very important because this is where we're going to find ourselves, at the intersection of two believable choices. Didn't say two right choices. Didn't say two godly choices. But have you ever been faced with two believable choices? 
that whether that was fear speaking, whether it was your past speaking, whether it was your feeling speaking, whether it was your intellect and your logic, and fact didn't kind of, you know, line up. And all of a sudden, there were two believable choices. One produced by faith, other one by all these other things that are going on in our lives. Now, notice that he does call him Lord. And he says, if it is you. And, and really, if we take the Greek in some renditions and some translations, it's, he's actually saying, since it is you. There's actually a, an element of faith here that he's exercising. Peter has belief, but there are still those alternative possibilities. And that's where we come to a, a verse that I want to share with you and a prayer that I want to share with you this morning that we will use throughout this series. It's from Mark chapter 9, verse 24. It's the father who cried this out. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Have you heard that before? If you've been in this church, you've heard it because that's my favorite prayer in the whole of the Bible. I think it's one of the most real prayers in all the Bible. It is a prayer of confession and profession. It starts off with the profession. I believe. So he professes his belief and yet he confesses there's still some doubt here. I'm still working my faith. I'm, I'm still, you know, I, I want to believe. I want to step. I want to go. But I have these alternative choices in my head. Does that make sense? Is this a prayer that believers should pray? I should be, I, I, I think it's a, it should be a constant prayer that we believe. Because what we're asking there is, okay, God, will you help me to overcome? Will you help me to mature in my faith where when doubt comes, I can, I can go forward in faith? If doubt is a reality that we have to deal with, if we're developing a theology of doubt, then what better prayer than to turn to God and to say, God, will you help us overcome this doubt? And I believe that that's what Peter's doing here. Look at verse 29 and 30. And he said, come, that is, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on water and he came to Jesus. How amazing that is. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to seek, he cried out, Lord, save me. I don't know how you feel about verse 30, but I'm kind of mixed in my feelings. I don't want to be real critical, Peter. You've probably heard pastors joke before. That while the other disciples could have said, yeah, you were about to sink there, uh, the other ones were safely in the boat. Peter's the only one that gets out of the boat. He exercises his faith, and, and yet there's an obstacle to his faith, something that creates doubt. What is that? The wind. He's a fisherman. He has knowledge. So this could be the emotional fi- feeling of this really big wave coming. It could be the logic that, oh, I'm heavier. than I, I don't normally walk on water, so I'm going to sink and I'm going to drown. There could be past experiences. Maybe being a fisherman for all these years, he actually knew people that had drowned on this sea. Could be a combination of all those different doubts that we talked about here. But this is what Peter's confronted with. And so when he begins to look at the wind and he takes his eyes off of Jesus for that moment, he does begin to sink. But listen to what he says, guys. Lord, save me. I mean, we can be accusatory of Peter. Man, he didn't have faith. He should have had faith. I don't know if I'm even out of the boat, guys. 
And even if I'm out of the boat, this big wind comes up and all those things, all those other realities that present now an alternative choice, I think I'm looking there. What a wonderful prayer. Lord, save me. I believe. Help my unbelief. You see, the first doubt came in the possibility of a ghost that wasn't real. The second doubt came in the reality of a wind. Was the wind real? Yeah. There's many times that doubt comes in our lives and it's not even a possibility. It's just kind of fictitious. It's just something out there based on feelings, false facts, this and the other. But folks, there's going to be other times. There's going to be times in your, in your life that all of a sudden your boss says, hey, we're laying off and I'm sorry, we're going to have to let you go. And you go back to a home and you know you have this laundry list of bills. Is that feelings or is that fact? Yeah. And that fact stirs up a lot of feelings, doesn't it? All of a sudden there's a lot of feelings that start to to become manifested and and grow out of that fact that how am I going to... If you're a guy out there and, and, and you know that one of the things that you do is you just provide for your family and all of a sudden you lost your job and that provision... Can you love Jesus and believe that he's Savior and lose your job? Yeah. And this is just God's way of getting back at us because of some other sin that we did three years ago, three months ago, or yesterday. You don't develop a proper biblical theology of doubt. And you can start believing that. God's just out to get me. I would challenge you with another thought this morning. When we face real storms, real winds in our eyes, because don't miss this, even as Pete allows doubt to take over his life for the moment, what does he immediately do when he begins to sink into the seas? Lord, save me. And look what happens. You know, how many immediately did we have in this passage? How many have we had so far? We got one left. Verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and he took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? We have a sufficient Savior. Who criticized Peter because he doesn't have faith? No, he says, you had faith, you just had little faith. Peter, I've given you enough to to believe on, but your faith still needs maturing. This is where we come back to this consistent prayer that I hope that we exercise over the next four weeks. I believe. Will you help me to overcome my unbelief? What a maturing prayer for Christians to pray who aren't finished in the race yet. Anybody finished in your race? I don't know that I can even see the finish line from where I am. So what a wonderful prayer. What a healthy prayer. What a mature prayer. What a biblical prayer and a theology, a biblical, you know, a biblical theology on doubt. I believe, (laughs) will you help me overcome my unbelief? Will you help me in the areas of my unbelief? Verse 32 and 33, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. 
And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Does that mean that they never doubted again? We know in Peter's case that's not the truth. Far from it. But what conclusion did they draw in their life as they saw this experience faced with alternative choices? Christ gets in the boat, he calms the seas, and they have this profession. Truly you are the Son of God. Guys, we're going to face the winds and the storms. And and we will exercise a theology on doubt. Whether it's biblical or not is what's in question. You may have a theology based on feelings. You may have a, a, a theology based on fact and logic, what makes sense to you. You may have th- a theology based on your past. Hey, you just can't trust people. You trust people, they will hurt you every single time. You may have all, a mixture of those things. And, and what our desire is, is that, that as we entertain these doubts that are going to come into our lives, fallen people in a fallen world, that we would have a biblical theology. And where that biblical theology leads me is to this simple prayer. I believe. Will you help me overcome my unbelief? I believe, God. Thou art the Lord. You're able to save. You're able to stop winds. You're able to do those things. But I face this wind. I believe. I got out of the boat. The wind became so strong, I began to doubt. I cried out to you and you catched my hand immediately in your grace. You you caught me. I believe, Lord. Will you help my unbelief? Will you help me to overcome that? Let's pray together this morning. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who deals um, very much in the spiritual, Father, very much in the practical. And Father, that your spiritual is the foundation for the practical things that we have to live out. Father, I can only imagine that uh, that in this very body of people this morning, Father, that some entered this morning with some doubt. Maybe not angry doubt, but maybe even possibly angry doubt. Why this? Why me? Why now? Our Father, as we said before, that, that, that biggest vulnerability, our children and our grandchildren... Hey, God, you can do this to me. But not my daughter, not my son. And so, Father, we entertain all these alternative things. Are you just mad at us? Have you, as as David says in the song, have you forgotten to be gracious? So, Father, we thank you this morning that, that you ground us in your word. And, Father, you give us a place, even in the winds and the storms of life, to be able to, to utter a profession, I believe, but also, Father, a confession to you. Will you help my unbelief? And so, Father, this morning we come to you in that attitude of brokenness, Father, in humility, that we just put our complete trust in you, even when we don't understand what's going on, even when the hurt is not just up to our neck, but it's, Father, we're just sinking in hurt, that we would cry out to you, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And just as you did here, Father, 
immediately you'd grab her hand and Father, you'd give us the security of knowing that we're there with you, Father. We love you and we thank you this morning, Father. We sing this song as a prayer, as a confession of our heart and our trust in you. And Father, we, uh, we just thank you for the beauty of your word, for the hope of the gospel, and for the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.